thanks for joining us for another episode of CEDA's uh, The Economist Corner podcast. Uh, I'm Melinda Salento, CEDA's uh, Chief Executive Officer. I'm joined today by CEDA's Chief Economist, Jared Ball. And normally, Jared and I use this podcast to talk to leading Australian economists to discuss uh, the key issues on the economic horizon for Australia. But today, we're fortunate to have joining us um, Jared Minerick who is the Director of Research with the Committee for Economic Development in the United States. And uh, the Committee for Economic Development is, in fact, the organisation around which CEDA itself was built or inspired by. Going to be a cracking conversation, and let's get to it. We're, we're in Australia at the moment, and particularly where Jared and I live in Victoria, we're pretty obsessed with COVID. <laughs> and so uh, uh, it'd be interesting to understand, and we're obsessed with COVID in the US, I have to say. Like, I think everyone's just kind of very focused on the numbers here. And, and it, it feels a bit like one of the things we're trying to do is, is convince ourselves that we're doing better than than other other countries. So I'm kind of interested in, in what's going on in the States and what it feels like on the ground there. Because um, from over here, it feels uh, pretty crazy. There has been a really consider, considerable evolution of people's attitudes. Uh, the extent to which that is going to continue is, is a real question. We do have the unfortunate phenomenon of a disease, a pandemic, uh, having been defined in many people's minds as a political issue. Uh, there was discussion from the very early moments that, uh, oh, this is being overblown, uh, it is uh, all a hoax, uh, it's just the flu. Um, and we've gone through those stages. Uh, that was relatively easy to do from some quarters at the time when the virus was to a considerable degree confined to particular parts of the country, particularly when you were talking about New York City. Uh, New York City has a political identity. Uh, it was the concentration of the pandemic in the early days because it's a transportation hub. And so, um, and the irony of course, is that as much as we sometimes identify the pandemic with China, the transportation hub in New York is mostly in contact with Europe, and that is where the disease actually was at its most virulent. Uh, the West Coast uh, phenomenon was, uh, at, in the early days, heavily concentrated in a particular nursing home, which of course is, is uh, a highly vulnerable location, but beyond that, the number of cases was relatively limited. Uh, so. The attitudes uh, around the country seem to be slowly evolving uh, with the proviso that for many, this is still a political phenomenon defined as uh, a statement uh, on one side that is intended to tar the other side uh, with questions about how real it is. Um, 
the attitudes are probably going to change as now we see the virus making its way around the country. And of course, the next question is, does it go back where it started from and uh, does it become uh, serious again mm -hmm. in some of those locations that seem to have put it down? Uh, we'll see. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I think, you know, from uh, from, a, from an Australian perspective, I, I reckon that Jared will be interested in what you think, but, you know, the, the way the virus swept through Italy, um, I think was a real shock here in Australia, probably not least because we've got, you know, lots of um, kind of cultural connections and population connections to Italy through our migration um, and, you know, huge waves of Italian migrants that have sort of made up our, our past, if you like. Um, but I think that that imagery and, and the imagery, particularly in New York, around, you know, refrigerated trucks to deal with, um, you know, the, the overflow of corpses and things like that, to me those were sort of two things that just sort of stood out as just so shocking, if you like. And have sort of def defined at least the early stages of the crisis, and I think an expectation that things in the U.S. would be so different. I don't, I don't know what you think, Jared, but yeah, I think yeah. that's, I think that's right. And I think we we saw all those images early on, and it kind of prepared us for the first wave, I think, and and made people really vigilant um, and cautious. And it it feels like we're only now starting to see kind of a similar kind of intensity. Um, to what we saw, what we saw overseas. Um, I'm interested as well, Joe, in terms of obviously here in Australia, we've had a lot of um, you know cooperation between state governments um, to some extent, and at the moment we're seeing a lot of focus on closures of borders between um, our internal boundaries here. When you talk about the politics of it in the US, um, how's the politics played out between? different states? Um, are they all simply going their own way and not really looking over their shoulder? Or is there a level of awareness across different states in how they're, they're dealing with this? It really does vary. Uh, and in some ways, predictably, uh, there are a couple of developments recently that shed a slightly different light on it. Uh, as you probably know, the United States politically is very regional. Uh, the South tends to be of one mind. The Northeast tends to be of one mind. The coasts, really, the West and East coasts tend to be more progressive or liberal, choose your term. Um, in the South, uh, there was originally a considerable resistance to the whole notion that this was real. Uh, then the virus started to spread. Uh, there is still considerable resistance, but you are beginning to see some cracks in the front of political attitudes. Uh, so you go along the Gulf region of the United States and uh, in Florida, the governor remains uh, extraordinarily uh, uh, aggressive in his wishes to reopen and to get the economy moving again and uh, seems to some uh, to belittle uh, the consequences of the uh, of the virus and then within Florida you have some 
uh, big cities, some metropolitan areas where because of population density, because of relatively low income populations, the possibility of um, uh, the spread of the virus is much greater. And so you have an internal war within the state. Then you look at some of the neighboring states and you find that there are some differences in attitude uh, towards the virus among ostensible political allies. So we now have the governor of Mississippi uh, putting forth a mask wearing requirement. This is a Republican governor who is highly conservative, who was resistant to that for some time. So while you have the governor of Mississippi imposing a mask requirement, you have the governor of Georgia taking the mayor of Atlanta, the biggest city in Georgia, the biggest metropolitan area to court over the mayor's mask wearing order uh, and the governor saying that it is not within the jurisdiction of the mayor to override his mask wearing advisory. So at the same time when he was very personally blasé about mask wearing, he did to cover himself issue a, an advisory that people should wear masks if they feel like it. And saying that a mayor of a major metropolitan area, which had become a virtual hotspot, uh, could not overrule him by putting a mask wearing requirement on. So here you have this supposedly monolithic um, region of the country, and you're starting to see some differences. How that will develop uh, is uh, very hard to say, but it is an indication of the extent to which um, you know this has the potential of being a really upsetting political force in the United States. So, so Joe, to, to put this in context, in I mean, in Australia at the moment, um, it's, it's a, it's a, I mean, it's a really mixed bag in terms of how we're managing this crisis. So where Jack and I live in Victoria, we, I think we've made progress and then all of a sudden had not managed the quarantine process well um, and we're seeing quite significant community transmission and we've got quite extreme measures reintroduced um, and, in fact, the harshest measures um, that we've had in place uh, throughout this whole um, crisis. So, um, you know, really, really strict rules around who can go where, not really supposed to be five kilometres from home, one family member shopping um, at a time for one hour a day, once a day, you know, all this, all this sort of stuff. The whole country is watching um, the development of cases in, in Victoria. As Jared said, borders are being shut down. But, but this, is, this is literally an, a national focus at the moment. And, and the numbers here, even, I mean, yes, we're a smaller country, but per capita, the numbers are, are nothing like uh, what you're seeing in the US. And I'm really fascinated, I'm really interested in the extent to which this is really capturing the imagination of, of the American public. I mean, is it is it something that people are you know that you feel a momentum around genuine concern about, or is it is it still 
a, a really big rump of people who think it's it's nothing more than sort of um, you know fake news to to use that phrase. What does it feel like? Well, in fact, both very strong feelings uh, are present. Uh, and to some extent, as I noted a moment ago, it's regional. To some extent, uh, when you go to parts of the country that are more diverse, uh, you see it in play in everyday life. Uh, there are still people who feel obligated to get on social media and, uh, you know, go hunting for people who are expressing concern and uh, uh, starting an argument over the Internet uh, over uh, whether this is all a hoax or not. Uh, you see uh, the phenomenon, and I, I mentioned earlier the, the uh, diversity with respect to uh, uh, requirements and wearing of masks. Uh, there are major U.S. retailers uh, who have imposed their own mask requirements. Uh, so they have said on a national basis, and it includes, uh, you know, the largest U.S. retailer is Walmart, which uh, had its roots in the South in, the, in a conservative political area. And they have come to the conclusion that they need to have mask wearing in their store for public health and also, I'm sure, to protect themselves from any allegations that they have been responsible uh, for cases of the virus. Uh, so, of course, if Walmart, a Walmart store is located in a jurisdiction that has a mask wearing requirement, uh, that's all fine. Everybody's aligned. Uh, if you go to a Walmart store in a jurisdiction, a state, or a city uh, where there is no mask wearing requirement, uh, the store, uh, by imposing a mask wearing requirement, is responsible uh, for enforcing it. And uh, we have had some widely publicized, very ugly circumstances where individuals have walked into stores um, where there is a mask wearing requirement and have refused to wear masks and essentially said, you know, go ahead, arrest me. Well, the store personnel can't arrest them. Uh, mm -hmm. The store personnel can call if there is a broader uh, uh, if there is a, a municipal or a state mask wearing requirement, the store can call law enforcement authorities. Um, you know, that's a pretty extreme step to take. But it does put people uh, who are otherwise in the store in, uh, you know, in very, uh, uh, very questionable positions because suddenly they're being exposed under circumstances when they believe they wouldn't be because I'm going to the store where there's a mask wearing requirement. Um, it, it has, um, you know, so it has captured the imagination of the American people. The attitudes are highly diverse, in many instances extreme, and um, it is it is uh, taking place. It is uh, you know seeing itself out uh, in a number of highly unlikely venues uh, and in a number of highly unusual ways, uh, which uh, 
you know, in the end, uh, are are extending to uh, uh, a wide range of activities in uh, people's daily lives. It's it's uh, it's quite extraordinary. Uh, I've been around for a while, and uh, I've never seen anything like it by any stretch. I'm, I'm going to let Jared grill you on all things economics, but before we do that, I, I mean, I think um, we were talking earlier about, you know, I've, I've got family in the U.S., and you know, I think um, it, it was interesting talking to my brother just this morning, actually, where he was sort of saying, um, yeah, you hear about it, people talk about it, but he, he lives in Wisconsin and, you know, he was saying, but no one in the community knew anyone who had it. You know, it's just it's this thing that's talked about. And he said, you know, all of a sudden he's had a colleague at work and he works in a small workplace, there's only, you know, a dozen or so of them. And all of a sudden, he's had a colleague at work who's um, who's tested positive, and you can just see it's just um, it's it's this concept that you know people are sort of worried about, but doesn't seem that real. And uh, it's it's been very much brought to the fore for him, um, and and I think it's just part you know put a, a completely different lens over um, the top of a whole bunch of stuff, including as you said, Joe, the sort of political persuasion of some of these conversations, which um, you know I think. I, th I think one of the things that's happened that that has happened in Australia or hasn't happened, however you want to look at it, is that it's that politics hasn't played into it. it it's been it's been very much a health issue um, uh, across all politics, really. And there's been very there's been a little bit of shenanigans, but 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 not too much. So um, anyway, I guess I guess we we watch this space uh, and see what happens. Um, Jared, take your comments over to you. <laughs> <laughs> take a sip of wine now. <laughs> well, well, it was, it, it was interesting, Joe, when you're talking about how extraordinary, you know, the the kind of community reaction in some of these incidents um, are. Obviously, the the economics of this have been truly extraordinary. And and here in Australia, I think in the early days of the crisis, we were watching um, those weekly unemployment claims numbers in the US um, with with great despair. Um, the second quarter has seen a 33% um, dip in GDP, uh, as I understand it. The Fed is, is perhaps leaning towards the idea that there should be more fiscal um, stimulus in the economy. Just how extraordinary is the impact on the economy um, how are policymakers seeing it and, and how is it playing out in the community? It certainly is extraordinary. Uh, you've probably heard the, uh, the description of the economic downturn as the shortest recession in U.S. history uh, in the sense that uh, when you take the period where the economy was actually uh, contracting, uh, you are looking essentially at April and May. Um, and uh, in June, uh, already we were beginning to have a bounce back. Um, you know, now we're getting into this question of uh, the, the old rule of thumb that a recession is two consecutive quarters of economic contraction. You know, uh, we economists know that that's not the actual definition, but it's it's uh, caught on in the press. Um, but you have this extraordinary short and sharp uh, decline, uh, what will appear to be numerically a sharp bounce back 
which is to say a decline in the gross domestic product of 33% at an annualized rate, the next quarter may look like a 20% bounce back. Uh, and people look at 20% growth and say, oh, isn't this marvelous? We're, you know, we're on the launch pad or we've left the launch pad and we're going into orbit. Uh, a 20% bounce back from a 33% decline is, of course, worse even than the numbers would suggest because it's a 20% bounce back on a base that's one-third smaller. Uh, so um, the other phenomenon that is going on now is uh, the extent to which the recovery is going to be muted because of the spread of the virus from the original base in New York now to the point where Wisconsin uh, and many other parts of the country are beginning to see uh, the uh, onset of cases. And of course, the other phenomenon that uh, you know we all have to recognize is uh, this is one of those problems where you sit back complacently and say, oh, it's not happening here. By the time you see it happening there, it's too late because this virus is so extra it's it's devilish in its ability to spread. And uh, community spread uh, is extraordinarily rapid. Um, people who are not symptomatic can spread it. So before you know you have the virus, you've already, spread it to uh, a number of the people in, with whom you've been in contact. Uh, we have these tests. Uh, you may not get the results for two weeks. By the time you get the results, you may be seriously ill. You have certainly been in contact with other people and have spread the disease. So here we are. Um, we've seen New York and generally the Northeast region of the country very hard hit, but now having put down the virus, uh, you're, you've, you're seeing the numbers coming back, but in the rest of the country, you're beginning to see the effects of the landing of the virus and its community spread. So um, this morning, we are going to have another round of uh, data on claims for unemployment insurance Tomorrow, we are going to have our regular monthly employment situation report. Um, no, you have to be a gambler to want to say what you think those numbers are going to be. But um, there is a concern that these reports or subsequent, subsequent reports may very well suggest that the recovery in the employment, uh, in the labor market, uh, is going to be, um, in fact, uh, less robust than the initial numbers from that bounce back in June and, and in July would suggest. And uh, so we may very well see the, the uh, uh, economic forecast of the conference board of which the Committee for Economic Development is a part in the United States. Uh, suggests that uh, we will get to the end of the year and will not have recovered to the level of GDP uh, that we had at the end of last year. Mm -hmm. And that growth may very well be 
from that depressed level, growth may be no quicker uh, than we expected it to be at the end of last year, the kind of two and a tad percent uh, rate of growth that we had anticipated. So this is not uh, a, uh, a snapback. Uh, it's not the traditional V-shaped recovery. You're going to see a V, but the V is truncated, and growth from that level does appear to be, again, with enormous uncertainty, uh, and uh, I will not bet my home on uh, this outcome, but uh, it does appear as though the recovery is going to be uh, truncated short of the prior level of GDP, and that growth uh, from that uh, new normal, if you will, uh, is going to be relatively limited, depending, of course, upon what pharmaceutical science is going to be able to provide to us. And that's uh, an enormous part. That and people's willingness to behave in a socially responsible way are, are really going to determine where this economy is going to go. And and what is the nature of the, the kind of labor market response been? Have, you know, obviously, we've seen through a number of countries, um, workers have been furloughed. Um, here in Australia, the policy response is very much focused on keeping people attached to their employer for as long as they can um, to hopefully get back to employment when, when things improve. Has that been the focus of, of companies in the US or, or has it been simply a case of um, letting go of people? Uh, I, from what I can tell, employers are scrambling. They are trying to find a way through virus. Uh, the effects of the pandemic have been sectorally concentrated in a fashion that is, of course, unprecedented. Uh, you know, you go back 50 years and a U.S. recession meant that the housing market collapsed. Uh, we've had uh, episodes in between that have been very mixed. Uh, now here we are all of a sudden uh, and hand-to-hand uh, -hand services have been very sharply affected, uh, which has never been the case before. So as a result, uh, you have um, restaurants, you have retail stores, which have had to cut back on at least hours for their employees. In some instances, they have been mandated to close their doors. Um, one of the uh, motivations of policy has been to try to maintain the links between employers and employees in those sectors. That has proved to be very difficult to do from a public policy point of view. Uh, when over a period of time, you have cutbacks in the services that can be provided. So for an airline, uh, we have um, uh, bookings down, uh, you know, by a third uh, or even more. So you can't run airplanes empty uh, in, in a profitable way. A lot of the costs of airlines are not personnel, and some of those costs are fixed, uh, including the financing of the aircraft. So. Uh, keeping the employees connected to the airline uh, is, is uh, very difficult. It can be problematic. 
the same is true with respect to restaurants. Uh, a very heavy concentration of the costs of restaurants can be the rent of the facility. And when you reopen, if you can only use one table out of three because you have to maintain social distancing, um, suddenly you're cutting back considerably on the hours of your employees. Uh, that is painful because in the United States, given the way we compensate uh, restaurant employees, a lot of that comes from tips. And uh, tip income means uh, how many tables are you serving? Well, if one table out of uh, three only can be filled, uh, that means that the compensation of the employee is substantially worse. So this is highly episodic. It really depends upon the circumstances of the employer. We have tried with public policy through the uh, loan program, which is key to uh, lending proceeds being used to pay wages. We've tried to keep the employees attached to the firm, but in some instances that has not been possible in a way that is uh, amenable with the profitable operation of the firm, especially where costs have been concentrated not so much in labor but in other areas. So um, employers, uh, you know, from, from everything that I can see, it really is a case of improvising, trying to find ways to keep the business afloat. Uh, and in some instances, uh, that is not consonant with trying to keep your employees on the payroll. Uh, if the employer is trying to keep every dollar he can, uh, the, the restaurant owner is trying to keep every dollar to be able to pay the rent so that he can keep the restaurant in place, um, being compelled by public policy to try to play, pay wages of employees who can't be working because you can't use all your tables. Um, you know, it's it's uh, this is an extraordinary situation, and uh, it's raising all sorts of challenges for employers. Joe, if, if I can jump in there, um, you know, this is obviously a big debate here in Australia. That the government here has been, um, I think, incredibly um, bold, if you like, in the support that it's providing. And of course, we've got a different system here but there are direct payments to businesses to provide essentially a minimum wage for workers, no matter how many hours they do. There's also been um, a quite explicit program of rent relief and rent deferrals with, with pressure put on building um, and property owners to, to come to the table. Um, and it's in their interests as well, because you know getting people walking away from, from leases and things doesn't, doesn't make any sense. Now, there's a, there's a limit to that, and I think a lot of that was formed up with the perspective that there was perhaps a shorter time period. But there's also been, um, sitting beneath a lot of that, ha has been a bit of a debate about the comments that you took, you made earlier about the, the speed of recovery and the fact that it's services and, you know, in, in the context of labour markets, that if you can just keep people attached long enough to their employer that we're not going to see the typical type of labour market scarring and long-term unemployment that we see after recessions. The US is slightly different, I think, to Australia and Europe and other countries because it does have a much more dynamic 
labour market has a much more dynamic economy in many respects. How, is that conversation about what, what does unemployment look like, not just right here and now, but what does long-term unemployment look like? What does labour market scarring look like? Is there conversation about a generation of kids coming out of college that aren't going to get employment? Is, is that part of the, the mix of the narrative in, in the US? That conversation is, it has been taking part among economists. I think it is gradually becoming broader. Uh, but there was initially the notion that uh, we have a, uh, an epidemic of a virus, uh, people will get it, they'll recover, they'll be immune. Um, the premise of much of public policy when legislators were starting to address this in March was that we've got to get ourselves to June. Mm -hmm. And if we do that, we'll be okay. Uh, I think we're beginning to understand that that is not, uh, uh, <laughs> here in August, we're beginning to understand that that is not, uh, in fact, the way this is going to play itself out. And of course, there are still plenty of questions yet to be asked uh, and answered. Um, with respect to pharmaceutical science, with respect to people's behavior. Um, the, um, uh, at this point, I think we're beginning to understand that uh, the labor market scarring may very well become uh, an issue. Um, there was one argument that I heard counter to that, which was, if what you are talking about is unemployment among people who are in service businesses, uh, turnover in those businesses is typically relatively high anyway. Those are entry level jobs. As a result, when the uh, epidemic is over, uh, those people will go back into entry level jobs they will not have lost any highly sophisticated specific skills. And as a result, they will get on the ladder lower than they were before, but it's the same ladder. They'll grow at the same pace. Don't worry about it. Uh, of course, the longer this goes on, the less relevant that conversation is. Mm. We are talking about people who have graduated from school uh, at the end of our academic year a couple of months ago with skills uh, going into a labor market that is depressed, even in areas other than the hand-to-hand -hand service work because of the fact that the entire economy is depressed. You know, one lesson we're probably gonna take from this is for those who thought that this was not a team sport, you know, who didn't believe that everybody was a part of the team and was participating in making the economy grow. Uh, you know, here we have a lesson. If uh, people who do those relatively low skill service jobs are displaced, you can feel it everywhere. You know, even in some more sophisticated lines of work, you have people on reduced hours, you have people on reduced pay. Uh, it is having an impact more broadly than unemployment narrowly defined. So yeah. I think we are beginning to have that conversation and it is going to become more real 
as we go further. The quicker we find a way out of this, and uh, then we're getting into these questions of pharmaceutical science, we're unfortunately getting into these questions of the politicization of personal behavior, wearing a mask, maintaining social distance. Um, you know, even though some people are behaving well, uh, having 50% of the population, you know, if you say that we are divided equally politically, having 50% of the population wearing a mask and maintaining social distance uh, is not enough to prevent uh, a pandemic. Uh, and as a result, uh, you have the uh, social consequences of bad personal behavior played out. Uh, and uh, the longer this goes on, the worse the scarring is going to be. Uh, if we have a second uh, academic year um, harmed by the uh, by the virus, you're going to have a second vintage of workers who are going to be suffering in the labor market. Uh, and uh, as you note, uh, the costs to those people personally may very well be enduring. And uh, the longer this goes on, the worse it's going to be. And uh, we've got to pray for uh, good personal responsibility and for uh, uh, advances in the pharmaceuticals and, and both the vaccine and the therapeutics uh, to help to uh, uh, get us out of this as quickly as possible. Hey, Jared, before you jump in on, on fiscal policy questions, just for you talking, Joe, can I ask you a question? This is this, this is my um, lack of knowledge, but, um, you know, obviously the issue with the vaccine um, is it's is the ability to deliver it to the broadest popu you know, population. H how does that play out in the US? And this is, you know, with the healthcare system there, who pays for that? I mean, is this a, is this a public health um, kind of measure where once a vaccine is discovered that the government would fund, um, you know, the distribution and the uh, and and people getting that vaccine, or is it something that individuals them themselves would have to pay for? And and does that have implications for the extent to which you actually get the breadth of coverage that you you would need? Well, this has been an extraordinary circumstance. And uh, so the the situation that we're in today is not uh, a simple extrapolation of the healthcare system that we had nine months ago. Um, the federal government has contracts with a number of the pharmaceutical companies uh, in you know, the billions of dollars uh, to pay for uh, supplies of the vaccine. I believe there are at least two uh, pharmaceutical companies that are contracted to deliver up to 600 million doses. Uh, now, that's divided by two because in each of those cases, as I understand it, the vaccines in question require an initial uh, injection plus a booster. So 600 million divided by two is 300 million, which is approximately the population of the United States. So my understanding of what those contracts entail is that the federal government is going to buy the vaccine 
and the vaccine will be administered um, uh, at no charge. Mm -hmm. So that would take the cost hurdle out. Now we have the other issues, which include uh, these contracts, of course, have been signed before the full trials have been completed. Uh, I believe that both of the vaccines in question have gone through the phase two trials. Phase three trials of these vaccines have just begun. One of the vaccines, they had the first injections undertaken on July 27th. Under normal circumstances, uh, the uh, duration of a phase three trial is from one to three years. We are now talking about the possibility of judgments being made at uh, T plus six months or so, possibly even shorter than that. Uh, but then the question becomes, uh, how confident are we about safety? And just what is the degree of efficacy that is delivered by the vaccines? So in terms of safety, uh, one of the functions of a phase three trial is to uh, cover uh, a range of subgroups of the population by characteristic in sufficient numbers so that you have statistical confidence that for any one of these groups, the vaccine is going to turn out to be safe. Uh, and of course, particularly in the case of COVID-19, but really with any vaccine, uh, you do have to be concerned that a particular formulation might raise problems for a particular subgroup of the population. Uh, with COVID-19, given the fact that it is as virulent as it is, for the elderly, you got to be concerned, you know, you want to deliver the vaccine to elderly people, uh, but you're going to be injecting elderly people with a vaccine where if something's going to go wrong, the consequences are going to be serious. So you have to be considerably concerned. Now, this is, of course, all with the backdrop of an anti-vaxxer culture in the United States. And I, in my ignorance, I don't know whether you have that occurring in Australia. But there are groups in the United States, and uh, depending upon to whom you talk, these are people who either are cultists or they are people who are sensitive to scientific questions that uh, the mainstream of science is willing to blow off. Um, but there are people who are resistant to vaccines in general. Uh, they don't like vaccines in, on any front. Uh, polling has indicated that there are many people who, um, as a matter of principle, say they will not take a coronavirus vaccine. Now, what does that imply for achieving immunity for the population? Uh, what happens when you ask people who um, are going to look at this accelerated clearance process and say, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, you know, I'm, it, 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 
I want children to be vaccinated for measles and mumps and so forth. But given how quickly this process has been going, I'm worried about taking uh, a coronavirus vaccine. Um, and, uh, you know, as we've noted in discussing the nature of the economic hit, there are people for whom uh, employment means going out every day and doing your jobs. Uh, the people who work in the supermarket, in the, in the food market, uh, have got to go to work. Um, you know, people like me, you know, I'm an economist, but I'm really a nice fellow. Uh, I'm an economist. I can work from home. Yeah. Um, so if you ask me what what you know, what is my attitude towards a vaccine? I am not an anti-vaxxer. I want people to be vaccinated. Uh, but, you know, I'll wait a little bit myself. Thank you. Until having the opportunity to work at home, as I do, I want to see whether a particular vaccine is in fact going to be hospitable to and effective for people of my age, you know, which is older than I'd like to admit. So, uh, you know, these are, are questions that uh, we've got to ask. You know, herd immunity supposedly is achieved when you have about two thirds of the population that have uh, protection against the disease. Uh, the threshold for approval of a vaccine, at least in the United States, as it has been articulated in general, and it's been repeated in this instance, is 50%. If you have a vaccine that will give 50% of the people who receive it immunity, and you give it to everybody, and then in addition, you have had the vaccine propagated through the population, uh, the, the, the virus propagated through the population before the vaccine is available, we might hit that two thirds threshold, at which point, you know, we might start being able to feel relatively comfortable going out. Uh, and then if you have a therapeutic drug that says, if you do get it, we can cure you, um, you know, that that is when you can start turning the corner. You know, if we all got smart and started practicing social distancing and wearing masks as a matter of personal responsibility, that would further accelerate the, the uh, opening of the economy. But all these things have to work together. The pharmaceutical science, you know, God bless the people who are doing this work. It's, uh, it's extraordinary what they're achieving we have to understand that uh, they are trying to roll a rock up a very steep hill because of the nature of this virus and uh, the simple laws of physics, as it were, or biology, in terms of the, the process of uh, achieving uh, the degree of confidence in a vaccine that, that is necessary for us to uh, to reopen our economy and to feel comfortable about going outdoors again. Yeah, well, um, uh, I was reminded talking to um, one of our, our um, amazing professors here and a Nobel uh, laureate here that, in fact, there's never been a vaccine for a coronavirus. So they are pushing the rock uphill. Um, speaking of pushing rocks up rocks up hills, Jared, 
um, budgets uh, are, are, are looking a bit like that as well, aren't they? <laughs> well, surplus is looking like a very big rock up a hill. <laughs> Um, but but certainly not stopping people from uh, advocating for for further fiscal uh, action, including including the Fed, as I understand it, in the US, and certainly the um, you know monetary policymakers here have certainly not been shy about um, you know just saying that all all the pressure is on the fiscal side at the moment. Um, how's that how's that playing out in the in the policy debate at the moment? At this point, we are, I think, again, in a, in a transition phase. Um, the mainstream of policy economic thinking, uh, uh, of which I would identify myself, uh, I believe has been um, favorable towards our Federal Reserve. I believe they're being realistic. Uh, they have uh, put together a wide range of institutions, lending facilities, uh, beyond what uh, has been made available in the past. Again, this is an unprecedented situation. Desperate men and women are doing desperate things. Um, uh, not perfect. Uh, some of the lending facilities have been open, but nobody has come. Uh, which I think suggests that some of the lending terms need to be uh, fine-tuned and, and, you know, quite possibly made more generous. There is a realistic phenomenon here that uh, I think we need to recognize, and uh, Chairman Powell has been uh, uh, very clear about this. Uh, he can lend money. He can't spend money. Uh, that's not within his remit. Uh, uh, and as a result, uh, there are circumstances where additional debt, additional liabilities for businesses are not going to be sufficient. So there's a borderline between a business that is long-term viable but needs liquidity. Uh, and in that case, uh, a lending facility can be of use. There are businesses that are viable in the sense that uh, under normal circumstances, they can operate profitably, but in the current environment, they can't. Uh, a lot of the particularly affected businesses in the United States fall into this category. Retail establishments, many of them operate on very narrow margins. Uh, particularly smaller single location uh, retail establishments do not have cash reserves. Restaurants operate on a month to month basis, do not have cash reserves. One of the niche problems in the United States is childcare and early childhood education. There you are talking about phenomena, uh, institutions that operate month to month. They may be profitable under normal circumstances, but they cannot operate at all under a uh, uh, under pandemic restrictions. So for those uh, kinds of facilities, um, an additional liability is not necessarily going to uh, make them uh, survivable in the long term, even if it may keep them. Uh, 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 keep them alive in the short term. 
So one of the problems with policymaking, of course, is uh, separating the sheep from the goats. Who can be helped with a loan? Who can who needs a grant in order to maintain viability? Uh, and uh, that's where a lot of the cost is coming, is the problem of determining in policy uh, how can we use the dollars that we're borrowing uh, efficiently so that we get the most survivability among businesses at the lowest possible cost. How can we do that also in real time when we are talking about businesses going under from day to day? Uh, and it's extraordinarily difficult to do that. I mean, there, there, there's no textbook uh, in uh, this kind of uh, emergency response. And uh, that's a large part of the, the difficulty of where we are. And of course, you go to businesses and everybody wants a grant, nobody wants a loan. Uh, so uh, it, it, self-identification is not the answer to that problem either. Uh, it's a really, really difficult, uh, it's, it's going to be testing to our policymakers. And of course, as we borrow the money, uh, the public debt is growing. Uh, and uh, that is, uh, uh, you know, that's uh, happening in real time as well. Um, I'm conscious that every question I ask from now on is taking away time from Melinda to talk to you about the election. Um, <laughs> but, but obviously, you know, the, these issues are going to be front and centre, I would have thought, um, amongst others like law and order and, and others um, in, the, in the election as well. well. Just before we do switch to focusing on the election, um, monetary policy, some interesting developments, probably one of the more interesting ones that I saw was just around um, the Fed nominee, Judy Shelton, who, as I understand it, um, has expressed some scepticism about the need for the Fed um, to have decisions that remain independent of the Congress and the President. Um, what is what is going on there and, and should we be legitimately concerned about um, the the independence of the of the Fed in the U.S. I searched the press for um, recent uh, news on uh, Judy Shelton's nomination because I hadn't seen anything, and it turns out the reason why I haven't seen anything is that there hasn't been any press for I think about two weeks, which is an interesting reflection. Um, in the United States, with our system of government, the easiest thing to get done is nothing. <laughs> it is very easy not to act. Uh, right now, um, I hesitate to use this image, but uh, the coronavirus is, uh, we sometimes say, sucking all of the oxygen out of the room of public debate. Um, and uh, you have a Congress that is really eager to finish up its current activities and go home and campaign uh, for, uh, for the election. Uh, as a result, uh, with the need for legislation on the coronavirus, 
the Federal Reserve nominations, and there are, of course, two nominations pending. Uh, the Federal Reserve nominations have not received any attention. And I'm wondering whether it is possible that, in part, uh, what is happening here, and of course, when in the fullness of time, this will be obvious. Right now, it's rather murky. Uh, I'm wondering whether it is possible that this nomination is just being allowed to uh, wither on the vine, to use another expression that we, we use here in the States, which is to say that um, uh, I don't know Judy Shelton personally. I don't want to uh, to be unfair in any in any way, if you look at her history of public statements, they appear to be rather inconsistent from circumstance to circumstance. Um, with respect to whether Federal Reserve policy should be uh, loose or tight in similar circumstances, with respect to whether the Federal Reserve's independence is important, uh, with respect to whether the United States should go on the gold standard again. Uh, you know, the, the inconsistency on the part of someone who might be nominated to the Federal Reserve Board and who could possibly, therefore, upon the expiration of Jay Powell's term as chair, could possibly be nominated by a second-term President Trump to be the chair of the board uh, may be troubling to enough Republican members of the Senate, and that's the relevant population because Democrats are uniformly opposed. There may be enough Republican members of the Senate who would just as soon have this nomination be forgotten so that they don't have to go on the record. They don't have to take the risk of endorsing Judy Shelton or rejecting her, where rejecting her might become a lightning rod issue with President Trump's constituency when they stand for re-election. And of course, it's, it's, uh, it's only a third of the overall Senate, but they are disproportionately Republicans who happen to be up this, this election year. Uh, there may be enough Republican senators who will be whispering to their leader, uh, Senator McConnell, uh, you know, please don't make me take this vote. And it's possible that Senator McConnell might just forget about this one uh, in the course of the remainder of the year to protect those among his members who uh, are facing uh, uh, difficult uh, election campaigns. So uh, I don't know whether we're going to see this one actually come to a vote or not. Uh, and uh, I can't tell you that I have any particular inside knowledge. I don't want to uh, overstate you know, my own uh, uh, wisdom on this question, but I would not be surprised if uh, that nomination dies a very quiet death. So you've just given me such a perfect segue into the election, Joe. <laughs> I'm so impressed. The service I provide. Yeah, and uh, 
you know, I, I, I started our conversation by talking about how we're, we're all obsessed with COVID. Um, safe to say my peer group is pretty obsessed with uh, all things economics and politics in the US. Um, and from time to time, I, I actually stopped reading about uh, Trump just for my own sanity um, <laughs> in terms of obsession. But let me, take, let me ask you a serious question first, which is um, I think it would probably be interesting for some of our listeners to get a sense of the what the political debates are like in the lead up to a presidential election in the US. So if, if I reflect back on the last um, federal election here in Australia, economics was front and centre. Like there were some, some, I mean, there were some very um, sharp, differing policy positions that framed up most of uh, the conversation uh, in the election. I think that's fair to say, isn't it, Jared? That you know, there were just some really big divides around philosophical approaches to things like taxation of wealth, et cetera, et cetera. Is that, um, to what extent do those sorts of issues play into the presidential election or is it is it just a big personality contest, which is sometimes what it looks like uh, from across the water? There certainly is a substantive side to it. There is a personality side. The two are linked because the president's behavior, of course, uh, does carry policy consequences. Um, th this is a campaign like no other. I, I don't need to tell you that. Um, we did start with uh, a kind of a war within the Democratic Party in the nominating process on that side. Um, it was highly ideological. You had the mainstream candidates. You had the uh, more radical or progressive, uh, whatever, you know, choose your term. Uh, the socialist candidate won, you know, avowed socialist candidate. Um, that one was resolved uh, in a relatively sudden way uh, when uh, uh, it became clear that uh, on the uh, on the mainstream side, it was uh, Senator Biden or nobody, Vice President Biden or nobody. And uh, Vice President Biden suddenly emerged. And at that point, it became one on one. And as one on one, the mainstream uh, won. Uh, you have the extreme wing where um, there was a certain amount of uh, uh, resistance uh, to the vice president uh, over time. To some extent, I think it has become clearer that uh, we have a two-way choice. Uh, we have the vice president or we have President Trump. Which one of those two do you want? Uh, that may be leading to a greater degree of unity on the Democratic side, which will be helpful uh, to the opposition if that holds going into the campaign. Then you go on the Republican side, and of course, the, there, there is an asymmetry here, which is that um, the president is the extreme wing of the party. And then you have the moderates who uh, are really being torn uh, between extreme positions that they don't accept, a mode of behavior that for many of them, I, I'm sure they consider to be 
uh, counterproductive, concerns about our institutions and the threats to them and their durability, uh, and uh, their party. Uh, for many of the uh, candidates uh, in the Senate and the House who have challenging uh, campaigns, and of course, many do not, uh, you know, one of the phenomena in the United States that uh, has been most important in recent years has been the extent to which especially um, uh, House of Representatives districts, but also to some extent states in the Senate, have become totally safe. Mm. You know, the campaign that is meaningful is the primary. And all you have to do to be reelected is to make sure that you take care of yourself on your extreme. Uh, you make sure that you're not challenged if you're a Republican. You make sure that you're not challenged from the far right. But then you have Republican candidates this year who are in the races that do where the general election does matter, where you have a state that is more purple than red, where you have a, a House district that is more purple than red. And there you have the people who are, you know, they're being stretched on the rack. Uh, they need to keep the extreme, the ideological extreme in their districts on their side. So they have to somehow be friendly toward the president. On the other hand, uh, many of them are extremely uncomfortable with uh, the president's positions on policy and uh, with uh, his behavior and what that portends to uh, American institutions and our norms of behavior. Uh, and that's really tricky. I think the poster child uh, in that uh, episode is uh, Senator Susan Collins of Maine, mm -hmm. uh, who has um, won from a centrist position uh, for several terms in the Senate. It, she it, at least at least two, probably more than that. I confess I don't recall right off offhand. But uh, all of a sudden, you have uh, uh, relatively moderate Mainers who voted for her in the past who are saying, if I vote for Susan Collins again, I am enabling the president. Mm. Uh, because Senator Collins has on several key occasions fallen in line with her party. Uh, so Senator Collins is under threat. Uh, in a sense that she has not been for several past elections, uh, the implications of that are going to be extremely, uh, extremely difficult for her. Uh, so this is this is a campaign really like none that I have ever seen, and uh, it has all of the dimensions that you specified. It's got politics. It's got ideology, the substantive issues, we have the handling of the virus, we have its economic implications and the economic response to it. Uh, then we have all of those underlying economic issues. Because of the prominence of the virus in setting the table, as it were, uh, there is, I think, to some extent, 
the possibility that a lot of those issues that we thought were going to be so important, wealth taxation, free college, um, uh, uh, Medicare for all, uh, that are going to be fading into the background because there are, is going to be an argument on the uh, the other side, on the Democratic side, uh, Job one is to see to it that Donald Trump is not reelected. We can't fight over these other issues right now. We've got to put those aside and focus on job one. Uh, and that may mean that some of those other issues fade into the background. Now, whether that will turn out to be the case, of course, will be obvious uh, a few days after the election. Uh, I was going to say when we see the exit polls, but of course, with so much of our voting happening on paper, we may not even see that. Uh, but uh, that having been said, um, once the election is over, those issues may resurface with a vengeance, especially if we see uh, Democratic uh, takeovers, not only of the White House, but also of the Senate, where all of a sudden the question is going to be, can Democrats become united and take many of these extreme policy positions like Medicare for all, free college, wealth taxation, and so on? Uh, and that will be something to see when that, uh, if and when that uh, transpires. Yeah, Joe, when you were talking, that's exactly what I was thinking, that um, yeah, it's, I think this whole thing has just been incredibly fascinating because um, you know, leading up to Christmas last year, uh, you know, certainly anyone in Australia you talked to had a, you know, I think a pretty, well, not anyone, but I think there was a strong consensus that people were expecting in 2020 that Trump would be re-elected. I think everyone was pretty much banking on that. And, and the Apple card has been well and truly upset uh, now. But, at, you know, as you were describing the, the um, dynamics, I, you know, the thing that really struck me is that it's great to unite and unify around a common uh, enemy, which is essentially what the Democrats are doing. There's a sort of veneer of um, unification in the Democrats that uh, might be pretty sorely tested if they, uh, you know, if they end up um, successful, and particularly if they end up controlling controlling the lot. Um, so, I, you know, my gosh, fascinating times, and and you know, I think it's hard to overstate the significance of it because there's just so many moving parts. I mean, here in Australia, obviously we're talking about COVID, but, you know, there is also a very acute um, interest in the, the dynamics between the US and China um, and, and a whole bunch of other issues that sit at the core of globalization, which of course has been a fundamental driver of Australia's economic prosperity really so um, you know, you know, we've we've got a dog in this race in in some respects. I think in terms of the extent to which this impacts, uh, you know, global uncertainty, global confidence, um, and uh, you know the the commitment to free and open markets that that we in Australia have certainly benefited from. Joe, jo, I'm going to finish with two quick questions, if I could. Um, both both on notice. <laughs> we've given you no forewarning on this. Um, I don't know if you've seen this, but it is still in the realms of the, you know, the presidency and politics and whatever in the US. Um, we've we've been watching a little bit in Australia this recent interview with President Trump that aired on HBO, 
um, uh, with a gentleman by the name of Jonathan Swan. Um, and I'm not sure if you know this, but Jonathan happens to be the son of um, someone here in Australia who's been a real advocate for very harsh measures, or you know, being very strict on trying to contain the virus. And he's, he was a bit of a poster boy, really, for that. Is, is Jonathan, uh, you know, got the same profile in the US for his interview with the president as he does over here in Australia? The interview has certainly gotten a lot of airtime. Uh, and I'm sure that, you know, noting that uh, there will certainly be variation there when you go from different, our, our media are political. And so uh, if you're looking on the left side of the spectrum, this particular conversation will be, will be prominent. Um, I, I, he's younger than his father. Uh, so, so the one, the one thing I can say for sure is that uh, he's uh, he's had uh, a, a shorter period in the sun, but uh, uh, he he did raise. I think uh, he did. He got a lot of attention. Uh, he clearly did not wilt uh, in the presence of the president of the United States, as you've seen some of the most prominently aired questions. Uh, included him challenging some of the president's assertions um, in a fashion that that sometimes doesn't happen. Now, he was in the perfect circumstance to do that. Uh, usually, when a reporter is questioning the president, it's in the uh, White House press room, uh, and you get one question. And uh, in principle, you get a follow-up, but the president can just call on somebody else if he doesn't want to answer the follow-up. Uh, in this instance, the president couldn't run away, so it, it was a more difficult uh, circumstance. Uh, so, uh, but but even granting that, uh, he was, uh, you know, he was a very feisty person, and uh, you know all all credit to him because any president of either party, any political figure of either party should have to answer questions. And uh, it uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes a president will use uh, the aura of his office and his ability to switch to another questioner to, uh, to cut off questions that, that deserve an answer. So, you know, all power to him. I, I suspect we're going to see more of him if he uh, if he stays around in the states here, which apparently uh, uh, he uh, uh, certainly is has has the personality to do. Well, we probably wouldn't let him back across the borders just at the moment. <laughs> He's going to have to stay there until until all this blows over or, yeah. or pay for his own hotel quarantine bill. Um, Good point. Jared, <laughs> Jared the Good last point. question I was going to ask Joe, I was thinking as he was talking, was um, so we're recording this podcast, of course, um, you know, looking for a podcast tip from you. What, what do you listen? What's on your uh, your list of podcasts uh, that we might sort of tap into? Oh, goodness. Um, I confess I'm a reader rather than a podcast person. Uh, and... Um, uh, you know, what what I have been reading, uh, the only thing I can say, um, when I was a pup economist, uh, my first professional job was uh, at the Brookings Institution. Uh, my idol uh, was an economist by the name of Arthur Oaken, 
Uh, and, uh, you know, this is going back a long ways. He passed away, I believe, in 1977 at much too young an age. Um, I do remember that in the early 1970s, um, uh, Arthur Oaken, uh, who was, was quite a wit in addition to being uh, uh, a highly skilled economist, uh, mentioned that uh, uh, at that time, of course, what we were dealing with as an economic crisis was the, uh, the oil embargo and the phenomenon in the Middle East. And at one point, he said that uh, as a macroeconomist, uh, he was extremely um, uh, peeved that uh, he had to learn that uh, Zaki Yamani was a person, Abu Dhabi was a place, and there were 42 <laughs> gallons in a barrel. He said, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to spend time on that. I want to think about macroeconomics, but I can't do my job without learning about petroleum. Uh, you know, right now I find that I can't do my job without learning about uh, about the uh, the coronavirus. Uh, and uh, I've been watching all sorts of things there. The Johns Hopkins site, of course, is helpful for numbers. Uh, the World Health Organization has a uh, uh, a spot where they are keeping tracks of uh, trials on vaccines. Uh, I'm looking at a variety of websites with respect to um, some of the underlying science. One of them is science. Um, uh, and uh, really scrambling through sources like that to try to learn some of the things that are important with respect to uh, the virus itself. But, uh, uh, you know, it's it's been a challenge. And... Uh, 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 it, it, the thing about podcasts, the people I know who uh, listen to podcasts uh, are uh, commuters. I'm not commuting anymore. <laughs> so uh, um, and uh, even at that, you know, for uh, uh, for much of the commute that I took, I was on a subway underground and didn't have Internet access. So uh, uh, I'm afraid that, that podcasting uh, what I'm going to do. Celinda so is, I am going to uh, listen much more assiduously to your podcast. I'm sure that that's uh, a, a good way to uh, uh, to learn about the art form. Well, I'm, you know, we've been in, what is it, Jared, 21 weeks of uh, work from home. So, so my commute is also, uh, has been significantly shortened. And I have to say, um, my uh, podcast listening has diminished quite substantially also, although I've taken to running a little bit more, so I listen to them when I go running. Jared knows that one of my favourite podcasts is actually This American Life. Um, that stems from my days of, uh, of working in the US at about the time that Ira Glass actually kicked it off. So, um, so there we go. In the spirit of books, what about you, Jared? What are you, podcasts or books? What are you listening to or, what, or reading? Uh I, I listen to my podcast when I cook, which I think probably is a is a bad indication of my cooking <laughs> skills and and what I end up doing if if you know I used to listen to podcasts while I commuted, um, but but now I uh, now I do it when I'm cooking. Uh, I don't think that's such a such a great a great sign. Um, I I actually just combining the two. I just read uh, a a book 
called Solved by um, Andrew Ware, where he steps through uh, a number of policy issues and kind of countries who've taken a really strong um, best practice kind of stance on particular issues and recorded a podcast with him last last Friday on that that's up um, on the on the web. So that was the that was the last book I read. And if you look over my shoulder, I think I'll, you know, I'll try and fill that top shelf with some more books before the end of lockdown. So I've been, uh, uh, I've just finished reading Jumpstarting America, um, which, which has been quite interesting. And I'm listening to Ezra Klein's book uh, on the polarization of politics in the US. Um, and I know there's mixed views about the, maybe the lens uh, that he looks through that uh, with and his interpretation, but certainly the beginning, beginning of that book actually includes a lot of very interesting data about um, uh, voting intentions and voting habits in the US, which which I think is really fascinating and, and maybe something we'll come back for another conversation about how you actually do good policy um, in a political environment that seemingly is becoming uh, so much more polarised. Um, Jared, on the cooking front, Joe, you weren't... This is, this is kind of way out there, but in the, in the realm of, um, you know, COVID nation, um, we, took, we, we ordered some um, delivery tonight, but not delivery as in, you know, takeaway that was cooked, but one of those sort of half-prepared meals. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was fantastic from a very good restaurant here called Super Normal. Um, but the interesting thing about it was that um, it got delivered at one o'clock this morning. <laughs> oh, goodness. So I'm not sure what's going on with that business model, but... But at precisely 1.05, the dog was uh, at the front door and we subsequently realised that, yes, indeed, dinner had been had arrived. <laughs> Goodness. Goodness. Um, yes, as you say, uh, we, 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 uh, this, of course, is going to be one of the questions that we ask. Uh, some people think about the uh, pandemic in the business sense as creative destruction. Uh, the weak are going to fail and their places will be taken by new and stronger businesses and will come out of this uh, uh, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And uh, I confess that uh, my sense is that, um, you know, what's happening is the, uh, uh, the losses in the downturn are much more random than they are systematic. It's not so much uh businesses that are strong or weak it's businesses that are in the wrong place at the wrong time and uh, if that's true what we're getting is destruction it's not creative uh the restaurant that grows up when this is over might be thai rather than chinese but that doesn't mean it's a new stronger business necessarily and um uh i think that's going to be one of the questions that we are again going to uh uh, see clarified in the fullness of time. Uh, I'm not sure that this is in fact going to leave us with a more productive and stronger economy, but we'll see. Any last comments from you, Jared? No, I think I think that's a I think that's a massive question around creative destruction and the extent to which some of the firms um, that will fail were destined to fail versus, as you suggest, just a random kind of you know act of luck in terms of where they were at the time when this when this virus struck um i i certainly i hope it's more creative than 
than uh, random and that we that we come back stronger um, in terms of having a dynamic competitive business sector. But um, I think that's that's something to absolutely keep a keep a really close eye on. Well, Joe, thanks so much for joining us. Um, we'll let you get on with your day. Uh, we will sign off. Uh, and um, I've certainly enjoyed it. Uh, I hope you have, and maybe we'll do it again soon if you're up for it. I'd be delighted. Thank you very much. And uh, it's been fun. Yeah, great. Thanks, Thanks Joe. So much. Okay. Bye-bye.